Today's guest is Dr. Bernardo Kastrup. He is the author of many books. He has a PhD in philosophy and another PhD in computer engineering. His ideas have been featured in Scientific American, the Institute of Art and Ideas, the blog of American Philosophical Association, and Big Think, among others. Dr. Kastrup, I'm honored to have you here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you and welcome. Pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it, uh, Jeff. All right. So a lot of my guests uh, love the idea and love the subject of near-death experiences. So I would love to talk to you today about consciousness and um, your opinions on near-death experiences and other metaphysical ideas. So can we first just start with something very simple, and that is, how do you define consciousness? Consciousness is the field of subjectivity where our experiences take place. So if you want to visualize it, it's very easy because whatever you visualize is by definition in consciousness and whatever is not in consciousness might as well not exist as far as you are concerned because it's not something you've experienced. So consciousness, to, to, to define it clearly, consciousness is that whose excitations are our ordinary daily experiences. What brings to my mind when you're saying that is waking consciousness and sleeping consciousness. Because I would assume they're, you're still, they're kind of the same, right? They are both consciousness. But of course, consciousness can assume many different configurations or states, so to say. And they are qualitatively different. Uh, dream consciousness is qualitatively, qualitatively different from waking consciousness. And that, in turn, is qualitatively different from the consciousness you have during a psychedelic trance. And I would argue it's also qualitatively different from the consciousness you have during a near-death experience. So there are many possible states of consciousness, but all of them entail experience. Uh, and that's what makes them all consciousness. Hmm. Okay. Do you believe that the neurochemical processes of our brain create the subjective experience of reality that we're calling consciousness? Or does consciousness use our body and our brain as a tool to experience reality? I'm not a dualist, so I don't think there is a fundamental difference between consciousness and the body. I think the body is just what certain configurations of consciousness in nature look like when observed from a certain perspective. I think matter is an image, an extrinsic appearance of what is inherently consciousness. The thing in itself is consciousness, and it appears in the form of what we call matter, depending on how you observe it. So, no, I don't think the body is a tool of consciousness. I think the body is what a certain configuration of consciousness looks like. Now, about the idea that... Um, this concept we have and that we call matter and we define it as something fundamentally different and outside and independent of consciousness, the notion that this matter defined this way somehow generates, produces, or gives rise to consciousness, uh, it's probably one of the most failed <laughs> ideas uh, in the history of human thought uh, because not only does it fail to explain anything, we have no idea how matter could possibly create uh, the qualities of experience. Not only that, uh, if you look deeply enough into the questions, you will see that it's an incoherent proposition. We are mistaking the image of the thing 
for the thing in itself. And that's why we invent this concept of matter. And then we, we are forced to explain experience in terms of it because we do know experience exists, all right? It's nature's given. It's the primary datum of existence that experience exists. And of course, we fail because we are trying to pull the territory out of the map. Mapper, sorry, matter is a map. Uh, it's the appearance of something that we can model and describe. Uh, but the territory is consciousness. So when we try to explain consciousness in terms of its appearance, it's like trying to pull the territory out of the map or explain uh, the painter uh, uh, in terms of the painting. Uh, you know, how does the consciousness of the painter arise from the distribution of pigment on canvas? Yeah, good luck with that. I think the problem we have today uh, explaining how consciousness emerges from matter is of the same category. It's not even a problem to be solved. It's a reduction to absurdity of the ma materialist metaphysics. And I think the sooner we accept that and look at alternatives, the faster uh, we, we will get to a point of health and truth uh, in our cultural narratives. Hmm. I think what you're saying is our bodies are the manifestations of consciousness in this reality you Would could you... say it this way because look we we have this impression and it's culturally sanctioned which makes it even more dangerous we have this impression that the screen of our perception the things we see hear smell touch we think that the screen of perception is like a transparent windshield into reality we think that the things we see is the world as it is in itself now, this idea is, is a failed idea, because if it were so, one, uh, we would not be able to resist entropy. Basically, we would dissolve in an entropic soup, because we would have to disperse inner states. This has been sort of proven mathematically uh, 10 years ago or so. Um, and then for the other, the other reason is that evolution would never have favored uh, screen of perception that is a transparent windshield. What evolution has given us is a dashboard of dials. Uh, that's what we have. That's what we see when we look out through the world. To the world, is is the values on those dials. We are pilots flying by instrument. We do not have a transparent windshield into the world. So what we call matter is not the world. It's the output of the dials. And of course, the dashboard is not the world outside, even though you can safely fly by instrument because you know, it provides you accurate information about the world outside, that dashboard of dials in front of the pilot. You trust it. It is accurate. But you don't mistakenly think that the world is the dashboard of dials. And that's exactly our mistake today. We think matter is the world as, as it is. No, this is, this is a, as Donald Hoffman says, this is a rookie mistake. It's a childish error. If you think a little, just a little more deeply about it, you realize that matter is just an appearance. It's the output of the dials. And what is really out there is then, by definition, not material. It's the territory. Matter is just uh, the map. Well, when I was watching your one of your videos, I think you said that w the physical reality is there, though. We all have to agree that, you know, Beyond our experience, trees are there, the, you know, colors are there. Is that correct? There is a reality outside our personal minds. Mm -hmm. This is undisputable. Right. There is 
something out there that does not depend on our wishes, our fears, our preferences, that is not uh, amenable to changing because we want to imagine it to be different. No, it has standalone existence and it is out there. So there is an objective world. The matter we see is just how that world presents itself to us on our dashboard of dials. So in both cases, the answer is yes. Are there trees? Are there houses? Of course, there is a dashboard of dials. The dashboard of dials is real. And if, if, if the pilot is flying by, by instruments, that dashboard is real. If it weren't, the pilot would crash. Mm. And there is a world out there, independent of the dashboard of dials. But that world out there, as it is in, in itself, has no trees, has no buses, has no buildings. It is not material because matter is the name we give to what the dials look like, not the world uh, that is represented by the dials as it is in itself. You see what I mean? It's an important distinction. So would you say that world out there that is not by the dials, is it just all energy? Energy is a very loose concept. Um, even in the hard sciences, there is polemic about and What do we really mean by energy? Um, I prefer a, a word that uh, has a clear felt definition. We all know what consciousness is, what mentation is. I think the world out there is mental in, in essence. In, in other words, it is uh, a consciousness, not your consciousness, not my consciousness alone. It is a extended uh, impersonal or transpersonal form of consciousness whose activity looks like what we call matter, given the dashboard of dials evolution has equipped us with. That conscious activity, if you will, the, the thoughts and emotions out there beyond individual people, the thoughts and emotions that underlie nature at large, those thoughts and emotions look to us when we observe them as matter, in the same way that our own thoughts and emotions present themselves to others in the form of matter, our brain, our, our, our body. You know, when, when you are very sad, um, that sadness feels like something from within, but it presents itself to, a, to the outside in a different way, like tears and a contorted face and the throes of despair. So we have direct intuition for this. Consciousness from within presents itself to other points of view in consciousness as what we call matter. In other words, the matter of our body. Our body is the extrinsic appearance, the, the representation of our conscious inner life. I think the very same applies to the rest of nature as well. Black holes, quasars, galaxy clusters, they are all the extrinsic appearance, the representation of universal conscious inner life that we can't really comprehend because it's so beyond what we are used to in this little state of consciousness we call life. So when people have a near-death experience and they say that wherever they go to, you know, they feel connected to everything. And I think some religions will say, you know, we're all one and everything's connected. Do you think that perhaps a person's own consciousness joins that universal consciousness or it stays separate? 
I don't think we are fundamentally separate from the foundations of nature. We are products of nature, like apples are the product of an apple tree. Um, and apples don't last forever. <laughs> that particular <laughs> configuration of an apple tree is not eternal, but uh, the essence is. Um, I think we are, the technical term is dissociated uh, uh, processes within a broader consciousness. And dissociation is just a technical word for when you forget things really, really deeply. Not only when you rem don't remember them, but when you fundamentally don't remember them and you can't help but not remember them. So technically, this is called dissociation. And I think biology, living organisms, is what dissociative processes in a universal mind look like when we observe them from a certain point of view. From that perspective, life is dissociation. So what is death then? Well, it's the end of the dissociation. It's the, the reabsorption of our own experiences into a broader, wider context. Um, I would go so far as to say that you know, when you're alive, you perceive the world. When you die, you become the world. You, you are not going anywhere. There is nowhere to go. Your subjectivity is not ceasing to exist because it's the foundation level of nature, not your personal self, not your narrative of individual identity, you know, the person born on that date that does this and has that many kids. No, no, that's not what I mean. What I mean is the raw subjectivity in you, what it would feel like to be you if you were complete, completely amnesic. If you didn't remember your name, didn't didn't remember where, when you were born, and you were still locked in a dark room, soundproof. So what would remain after that? Total amnesia, locked up in a dark, uh, a silent room. Well, that is that is what you actually are, um, and I think that stays and it undergoes a different kind of experience once the once the dissociation ends. And I think this is what people are narrating um, in cases of uh, true, valid, uh, uh, near-death experiences. It's that transition from perceiving the world into becoming the world. And of course, the world, the universe is one. And there are huge philosophical problems if you try to say that there are multiple fundamental things out there. You get into the interaction problem, the parsimony problem, all kinds of technical things that basically tell us it's hopeless. Uh, at the end, there has to be only one thing. It's the only way to make sense of what's going on in a coherent, defendable way. So if you're no longer dissociate, dissociated, dissociated um, you will experience, I think, that one is, which is where you came from. It's what you were before you were born. You were the, the world. Obviously, everybody comes back that I talk to, but while they're over there in whatever dimension they're in, I'm not even sure how you explain that, where, wherever they are, maybe they haven't fully entered into the universal consciousness, but they're retaining their identity once that they enter that universal consciousness. Are you saying that their earthly identity will cease to exist? Well, look... Uh, our earthly identity seems to be very associated, connected with our body. Mm -hmm. And our body dissolves. We know that. It's hard to deny that. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think it is reasonable to expect that um, when you die, you, you still have a body, some kind of body. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was one person I respected who defended this, that was Swedenborg. But if you read Swedenborg carefully, you will see that he's trying to talk to a certain what he calls the simple people of his time in the 18th century. So, no, I don't think uh, we retain our exact 
individual identity because then what would you be would you be the five-year-old you the 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 50 year old you i mean uh, no i mean we are not the same from one day to the other mm -hmm. let alone after we the body dissolves that configuration of consciousness dissolves because i think the body is the image of a certain configuration of consciousness so when the body dissolves it's telling you that that configuration of consciousness is changing um at the same time if you look through some NDE reports, and I'm not a student of the field. I have been exposed to some of it because of people I know. So I, I read some reports uh, that I thought were trustworthy, like uh, a report by Jill Bolte Taylor, the neuroanatomist who had a um, uh, left brain uh, stroke, um, had a near-death experience, or um, Anita um, Gosvami, Morjani or something. Yeah, Morjani, Morjani. Yeah, Anita Morjani. If you read their reports, you will see that they are narrating uh, a bigger identity. Uh, uh, Anita uh, goes Morjani. She says that she met her father, and then she immediately corrects it and says, "No, no, I became my father." Mm. That's not a preservation of individual identity. You're talking about more. Or Jill Bauti Taylor, she talks about her spirit gliding in space like a huge whale, like a genie liberated from the bottom. And, she, and, and then she says, I couldn't imagine how all that could fit into a little body. Mm. But that's more than individual identity. She's literally describing an expansion of awareness, an identification with a lot more than just the body. Uh, a partial end to that dissociation that makes us have the impression that we are so small and limited. So even in those NDE reports, at least some of them are consistent with what I'm saying. And of course, there isn't a complete end of personal identity because you bloody survived. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you didn't actually permanently die. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, there was a threat of dissociation that resisted because when the dissociation really ends, it can't recompose itself. Um, we know that from life. You know, if you pass a certain threshold, you know, you can't be brought back. Now, I, I admit that threshold is further down the road than we think it is. Um, but uh, you preserve some form of dissociation. Your body didn't start decomposing. So, and if the body is the image of the dissociation, that means that the dissociation was still at least largely uh, in place. What is your opinion then of reincarnation? Do you think that's possible or do you just stay within the universal consciousness for eternity? The colloquial understand of reincarnation, uh, understanding of reincarnation requires a form of dualism. So you share the body, but you remain an entity, an individual entity, which they call soul, and then that soul enters another body. Now, I'm not a dualist. I don't think that's how things work, even though dualism can be a useful metaphor. It can be easier for people to understand and things can work out in some circumstances as though dualism were right. But I don't think it is ultimately right. Um, I don't really know about reincarnation. It is conceivable that dissociation is hierarchical. So when we die, we shed one level of dissociation and we fall back uh, onto another level, which is still sort of individual bigger than we are as people, but still separate from the rest or seemingly separate from the rest. And it is conceivable that uh, a new lower level dissociation sort of sprouts out of that level and, and forms a new life. That's conceivable. The question is, 
the important question is not what is conceivable, but what we have good reasons to believe. Because, you know, it's conceivable that the flying spaghetti monster exists mm -hmm. and it's manipulating the universe with its noodly appendices. It, uh, it, it is not incoherent to say that. It's just massively unlikely because it's unparsimonious. So I'm not trying to compare reincarnation with the flying spaghetti monster. I'm just trying to set some boundary, some boundaries here mm -hmm. to say what I'm about to say now. It is possible, and I would say even likely, that uh, what happens is that, you know, we have experiences while we are alive, personal experiences, the things we see, the emotions we have throughout life, our insights. Um, and when the dissociation ends during death, you are basically seeding the whole of nature with those experiences you've had. Um, um, they are not going away. They just become available to a much broader cognitive context, the context of the mind and underlying all nature, which then inherits your personal experiences. And it is that mind that would then form a new dissociative process, which may inherit some of those experiences that were seeded with the death of someone else. Mm. Now, is it only of one person or multiple people? It could be multiple. I don't know. Maybe even the experiences of non-human living beings. I don't know. But I am intrigued with, with a few cases of um, uh, um, claimed reincarnation, which I think are very hard to debunk. So I remain open-minded uh, about it. I guess even if we're just speaking about reincarnation, it's almost even speaking about why do we incarnate in, for the first time at all anyways? I mean, again, is it just some kind of sprouting from the universal consciousness? It's very tempting, isn't it, when we say, okay, the foundational level of nature is a mind. It's very tempting to then assume that that mind knows what it's doing, that it has a plan, that it does what it does in a premeditated, deliberate way, in a deliberate way. I don't think that's necessarily the case because, look, my cats uh, are conscious. They are also dissociated alters of the mind of nature, but they don't do things in a deliberate manner. They act on instinct. Uh, they know if they're comfortable or not, but be, they know who they love and who they don't. But other than that, they're not making plans. They don't ask the whys of what mm. they do. There is no why. They're just doing what they, what instinct yeah. tells them to do because they are what they are. So I think um, rather than asking why did nature do this, um, because there may be no answer to that. It may be just nature doing what it does instinctively. The more fruitful question is, Knowing that it does do it, what can we make of it? Mm. That, that is the more interesting question. Not asking you know, what was nature's intention. It may have had none. But we are higher level um, mental beings. We have developed higher level cognitive functions. Because of evolution, we are able to self-reflect. We are able to pass value judgments to say this is right and this is wrong. This is fair This is and that is unfair. This is necessary and that is unnecessary. We are able to do that. Um, raw nature may not be able to do that. And it probably doesn't because nature isn't fair. If you look at what's happening in your backyard now and ants cutting up earthworms in pieces, I mean, that isn't very fair, <laughs> is that? Uh, the only fair living creature on, in the world are fungi. Um, because they only eat on dead matter. <laughs> they, they don't kill anybody. They don't kill anything. Um, 
So, yeah, I think that's the more fruitful question. We are in the position now to, to take stock of the fact that we exist, that we have higher level cognitive capacities that nature at large probably doesn't, and that it is then our moral responsibility um, to ask ourselves, what is this for? And how should we live life right? And how do we treat the world around us fairly? Because we are able to pass that value judgment and the rest of nature may not. Well, I'm glad you went there. So in your opinion, what is the point of life? Or is it the universal consciousness expressing itself? And also, if we start to understand all this, is there a way that we can use this in our benefit? Look, if I say that nature unfolds instinctively, that doesn't necessarily imply that it isn't going anywhere. It may very well be going somewhere. It's just not deliberate. Um, my cat is uh, instinctive, but it knows when it's hungry uh, where to go and get food. So it reacts on its own comfort or discomfort. And it takes actions uh, appropriate for that immediate feeling. If it's hungry, and it will, it will seek out food. If it's afraid, it will seek out shelter. So an instinctive animal, doesn't, although it can't deliberate and have a plan, it doesn't behave randomly. It, it is still acting on its experiences mm. in, in, in a way that from the outside seems deliberate, while it's in fact instinctive. So I think although nature at large, apart from us, uh, behaves uh, instinctively, I do think it is going somewhere, just as my cat is going somewhere when it's hungry. It knows whether it's, whether it's getting closer to the food or not. It knows if it's getting warmer or getting colder to, to appeal to that childhood game, you know, when you're blinded and people are telling you, you're getting warmer, you're getting colder. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you look at the history of life in the universe, insofar as we know it, so the history of life on Earth for the past three and a half billion years, there is a very clear direction in which it all seems to be going, and that is the rise of self-reflection, of our ability to become self-aware. Um, because, you know, when you're hungry or when you are in pain, you don't say, I am pain or I am hunger. You say, I have pain. I have hunger. Because you, you, you separate your raw subjectivity from your particular experiences. You are the entity who has the experience. Now, without self-reflection, without this ability to recognize yourself as a subject that is not exactly the same as the experiences, you would be your experience. If you're hungry, you are the hunger. If you're afraid, you are the fear. And it seems that the whole of nature is pushing towards the development of this skill, this skill to be able to take a step back take stock of what's happening and say, this is happening. This, this self-awareness, this, this self-reflective capability, technically called conscious metacognition, but uh, it basically means the ability to reflect. Um, the whole of nature seems to be pushing towards it. So if nature were my cat and it's hungry and it will look for food, I think nature is instinctively hungry for self-reflection. And it has gotten there through us. So I think the, what we can take from it, to answer your second question, is um, to stay alert for this, 
to exercise our self-reflection. We cannot control life. Um, most of it is completely outside our control, but we can take stock of it, whether it's pleasant or disastrous, whether it's fulfilling or depressive, whatever happens, we can take stock of it and tell to ourselves, this is happening and this is not good or this is good because it's through you that nature attains that very awareness, that very capacity to evaluate what's going on. Without us, everything would unfold according to instinct. In a sense, things would be, quote, unconscious in the sense that there are experiences, but not awareness of the experiences. Do you think nature is evolving itself and, use, and we are helping nature evolve? Well, clearly the universe is changing. The universe is a very dynamic place. You know, uh, uh, stars collapse into black holes. Um, living beings are born and die. Uh, things evolve. The sun is burning its fuel. Five billion years from now, it will become a red giant and planet Earth will cease to be. Um, so you may call that evolution uh, because it's not random behavior. The behavior of nature uh, we know from science uh, unfolds according to certain patterns and regularities, which are very precise. So the universe is going somewhere. We may not know exactly where it's going. We may not have an inkling for how it is feeling from within, why it's doing what it's doing at an instinctive level. Um, but it's clearly going somewhere. Its state is changing all the time through us and not through us, independently of us. So, yeah, I think in that sense, it is evolving. It's not random Brownian movement. It, it is going somewhere. And we may be able to risk some guesses about where it is going. And I think where it is going has a lot to do with our ability to self-reflect, maybe the ability of elephants and dolphins to self-reflect. There, there are good reasons to think that they self-reflect too, even though they don't have our language. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it seems that nature is pushing uh, in that direction. I think that's as far as we can say something coherent on, on it's a big mystery uh, mm -hmm. most of it will be f not forever but uh, for the foreseeable future beyond our ability to comprehend so when we were talking earlier about and i'm putting it into my simple interpretation of what you're saying that our body here on earth is a physical manifestation of our consciousness it, that's what it is so do you think that um, different states of our consciousness affect the state of the body? In a, Absolutely. In, like disease. So if we can change somehow the state of our consciousness, our mental thinking, our mental thinking patterns, then somehow our bodies will spontaneously heal. This is a direct implication of what I'm saying. But now we have to be careful. When I say the body is the image of a conscious process, it doesn't mean that the entirety of that conscious process is reachable through introspection. Introspection depends on where you place your attention. And most of the emotional uh, processes going on in our personal minds escape our ability to introspect into. In other words, we are not aware that we are having those emotions. And then people colloquially say, well, you're, you're unconscious of your inner life because you don't really know how you're feeling. Well, if you're feeling, then it's by definition conscious, by definition conscious in the phenomenal sense. 
but it may not be in within the reach of self-reflection. And uh, look, you are experiencing your breathing all the time, the inflation of your rib cage, the air flowing through your nostrils. But most of the time, your attention is not there. So although you are experiencing your breathing, you don't know that you are experiencing your breathing. But in this case, it's easy. You just shift your attention. Oh, now you know that you are breathing. There are many other things going on right now that you are experiencing and which are not within the reach of your attention. And you can't even put your attention there easily, even if somebody tells you, you know, you are experiencing that you have that repressed emotion somewhere in your, in your emotional body. Uh, it, it, it may take years of therapy for people to become aware of how they really feel about the past, how they really feel about other people, how much anger they really have, how much regret they really have, how much anxiety they really have. So the body is the image of all that. So theoretically, yes, by changing the configuration of your consciousness, you should be able to heal anything. But that presupposes that you can change everything there is to be changed about your personal consciousness. And I don't think that is possible. Although we can go a lot further than materialism would tell us. I mean, the placebo effect is getting stronger uh, uh, with the passage of time. Every year, statistically, it gets stronger. It's making it very difficult for companies to approve medicines because they have to be better than placebo and placebo is getting stronger. So we probably can heal a whole lot of things that today we don't believe we can heal by just working with our minds, which doesn't mean that we should ignore traditional medicine. I would certainly not ignore drugs and surgery. Uh, they have saved my life, so I don't ignore more than once. Mm -hmm. So I certainly uh, don't think we should neglect that. But we shouldn't neglect what depth psychologists call the path of the soul either, to heal your mind, and that will have a direct connection to your body. Now, can we cure everything? Can we cure fully penetrant genetic deviations probably not it's too deep in your mind you cannot introspect all the way there to change that it's too much built into your configuration of consciousness uh, but many other things we may be able to and i think we should pay more attention to that it's a very promising area of research i think do you think it's ever possible that we'll evolve to the level of telepathy Look, if, if my views are correct, what we have to explain is why we are not fully telepathic all the time. Because if it's all in one mind, I should be able to read your thoughts all the time. And I'm not. Presumably, you aren't either uh, able to read my thoughts. So I think it is dissociation that explains that. So, And this it, life is, is what dissociation looks like. So to be fully telepathic... Well, I think you can be that. You know, just wait until you are dead. <laughs> You'll be fully telepathic. Then Anita Morjani becomes her father. That's the ultimate in intimacy. It's the ultimate the telepathy. Is when you become you know, the, the, the fountainhead, that's the, the root of everybody's existence. Um, now, can we be partially telepathic during life? Can we sort of render our dissociative boundary more porous, more permeable? So we can be more receptive to things that are going on in the undercurrents of the natural mind that uh, underlies us and everybody else. I think we can. I think we can through training methods that we haven't devised yet or maybe have but don't take seriously. We probably can exercise that. Telepathy does happen. I've seen it happening very close to me. 
uh, I, dis- I discussed this in, in, in the, my book about uh, Jung. Uh, I, I narrate some of my own experiences with people having telepathic dreams right next to me, things that I cannot dismiss because I could verify all their circumstances. Um, so, yeah, probably we can train that. Can you give me an example of one of those um, telepathic dreams you spoke of? Uh, it was my girlfriend. It was a few years ago. We were on holidays in the countryside of Germany, very far away, totally disconnected from friends and family for a week. And uh, one day she woke up and said, oh, I just have have had a very funny dream. I dreamed that my grandmother was in a hospital with a bandage in her head, looking at me, and her two daughters were next to her, one on either side, and she was telling me telepathically, I am all right. And, and it was just that static image. And I thought, and she asked me, okay, how would you interpret that? Because she knows I am into Jung and so and all that stuff. And I said, well, this one, I can't really interpret. This one baffles me because it's so static. It's archetypal, but it's so static. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, give a call to your father, who was her grandmother's son. So she called her father and her father told her, yeah, last night your grandmother had a stroke in the head. She's in the hospital right now. My sisters are with her. Uh, but the doctor already said she's out of danger. Hmm. Yeah, Too many details to ignore. I knew she was not in contact with family mm-hmm. because where we were, only cell phones would work and she, mm-hmm. I was next to her all the time. Uh, and too many details are right. That not only the timing, all the little details on something in the head, her sister's there, she's in the hospital, she's already okay. Um, can't, can't ignore that. So how would you explain then what happened? Do you think that the grandmother's consciousness reached out to her in some way? I don't think things need to be that deliberate. I mean, if I am right, at the foundational level of our being, we are connected because we are all segments of one mind. I think Mm -hmm. this leap state um, is one um, where our dissociative process, process weakens. It's part of our rest. It, it takes a lot of energy to maintain focus, which is the same thing as to say it takes a lot of effort to maintain individual consciousness, to stay sharp and coherent. It's a lot of effort that is required. We don't notice it because it's happening all the time. So we've become desensitized. But we let go of some of that effort when we sleep, which may give a hint to why we sleep. And uh, and then the boundary becomes more porous and you may pick up on things that are already in the undercurrents of our being, but our attention is not there because to survive, our attention has to be on where's the food coming from? Mm-hmm. Where's the tiger hiding that may jump on and, and, and kill me? So you have to be very focused on other things to survive. When you sleep, you let go of that a bit and you may become, you may pick up on things that are flowing through you all the time mm. anyway, but uh, which give you no survival advantage to, to really register because, you know, my, my, my girlfriend will survive or not regardless of whether her grandmother is, has a stroke or not. Mm-hmm. So she didn't evolve to pick up on that, but during sleep, you may pick up on that. And of course, on the side of her grandmother, it's a major experience. You almost die. You are going to seed the undercurrents of consciousness with a lot of emotions the moment that happens to you. And and those currents may may take those signals away to somebody else who's close to you, who you have thought of when you were think when you thought you were going to die. So I think and you know, the, the most surprising thing for me, Jeff, when this happened is how 
um, unsurprised I was. Because mm. <laughs> I thought, you know, when I have a, an undeniable experience of something so-called paranormal, I think I'll be floored. No, I was totally nonplussed. It was like, yeah, of course. Mm. And I surprised myself profoundly by how much nonplussed I was. It was like my own instincts were saying, yeah, duh, this yeah. happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Why the hell are you surprised? <laughs> you know? I like how you use the word currents. It feels to me as like, you know, this consciousness has is flowing like an ocean or something. And perhaps that your girlfriend kind of somehow tapped into this. And um, also, do you think that perhaps when we are sleeping, resting, maybe even meditating, like you said, that we kind of let go of everything? Are we picking up these currents of flowing around? Or is it possible that we're tapping into this kind of universal consciousness? When I talk of, when I talk of uh, currents and flow, I mean it metaphorically. Mm. Um, mind itself is not in space and time. Space and time exist within mind. But our language... Uh, uh, has to appeal to space and time. It cannot work in any other way. So I have to use these metaphors, but I don't mean them literally. Mm. Um, I mean them picking up these undercurrents in the same way that you catch yourself having a certain feeling or a thought. You picked up on an undercurrent of your own mind. So you may pick up on something that's coming from another mm. dissociative process, which would be the same kind of process, just a little bit wider. Um, I do think that sometimes we let the guards down and we, come, we become more receptive to whatever is going on in mind at large around us. Uh, and that can't be picked up by sense perception because we didn't evolve to pick up those things. They are not relevant for survival. Uh, you mentioned meditation. Some forms of meditation, I think, have the opposite effect. They just light up the default mode network in your brain, which is the area of the ego. Uh, it's what you think when you're not engaged in a, in a practical task. Uh, and that we just reinforce the dissociation. You'll be completely immersed in your own thought of I am, I am this, I am that. So uh, not all forms of meditation, I think, help. Uh, the best model we have today, and we've known that for nine years now, now we know since 2012, and this, this has been repeatedly verified scientifically, so it's a very robust result. All psychedelics we know operate by massively reducing brain activity. They knock off your brain activity. Your brain goes to sleep while you're having the most mind-boggling and intense and rich experience of your life. That alone should give you pause. Um, I think what's going on there is that the psychedelic substance interferes with the dissociative process. It makes, by force, the dissociative boundary a lot more porous. porous. And then you pick up on these undercurrents. And, and then you are exposed to their richness and variety and even the sheer absurdity, because rationality is something that belongs to us. We shape the world according to rationality, but uh, mind is not rational. Not all of mind is rational. Most of it isn't rational. And you pick up on those undercurrents, which may feel totally absurd and, and preposterous. Um, so I think with psychedelics, you're picking up on that. Uh, yeah, and maybe some forms of meditation or when we surrender. Uh, we are very good at fighting with ourselves, fighting with life, but there comes a point where life sometimes can overwhelm us so much uh, with loss, with anxiety, with despair, meaningless. It can become so overwhelming, overwhelmed that for a small period of time, we sort of let go, we surrender. And then, then the magic happens. Uh, 
because it's that letting go, uh, uh, that that letting go of this process, that this narrative of personal identity, uh, uh, that the need to preserve that narrative, in other words, to survive. When you let go of that, then stuff happens. But for most people, it take it takes tragedies, uh, life tragedies, uh, to put you in that position. And even then, it's just for a blink. Or, and that happens too, when you least expect it. When you are unguarded, uh, like you wake up, I was reading this book by, by Federico Fagin, the inventor of the microprocessor, um, who is also not a materialist at all. Uh, and his, his word should be heeded. He knows what he's talking about. Um, and he says, and then one day he woke up at midnight middle of the night he didn't have any particular worry so he went to the fridge picked up some cool water he lives in california hot climate um he drank a glass of water looked at uh, lake tahoe uh, went back to bed and when he lying down in bed boom this happened uh, why did it happen then probably because he was totally unguarded he was not telling himself the narrative of the individual identity so, yeah, I think uh, this stuff can happen spontaneously, too. It sounds like if we could develop a technique of letting go, that it would give us a lot of therapeutic benefit. It's probably the most difficult thing you can ask from any human being is to truly let go. Uh, it's an onion of defense mechanisms we have. And we see through one defense mechanism and we think, OK, now I can truly let go. Now you are just in the next level. Um, it is, at least in my experience, it is extraordinarily difficult to really, really let go. There will be one moment in your life in which you will have to let go, and that's death. And you will struggle against that mightily and make this, the experience a lot worse than it, it, than it is by nature. But, uh, you know, three and a half billion years of evolution have trained us to not let go, because that's how these dissociative processes survive, by fighting to the bitter end. It's interesting, too, that you say that, because it seems like in literature and movies, you always see some character that finally lets go, surrenders, and then he has this breakthrough in his life. I think it's possible. Um, I think it's very rare. But it does happen. And I suspect that even when it does happen, you fall back into the trap not too long after that. <laughs> you rebuild those defense mechanisms uh, shortly after that. Look, let's call it enlightenment, that, that mm. this complete letting go. Mm. I don't think we should be in a terrible hurry to enlightenment because it's going to happen by mm. force. You now, you want enlightenment, you're going to be enlightened when you check out. And, and it's going to happen eventually, whether you want it or not. So you might as well try to make the best you can of this state mm. right now. Because nature has invested three and a half billion years of pain and suffering to get us here. So why be in a hurry going back to that place where you know you're going to end up anyway, right. sooner or later? Right. From talking to people, and I guess I could say mostly from talking to people on my own introspective, it seems like, you know, life has a lot of tragedies, disappointments, unhappiness, maybe even more than, than the positive sides of life. And if you agree with that, why do you think it is that way? Because nature is what it is. And I don't think nature is deliberate. I don't think 
God is doing this because it deliberately chose to do this to itself. I don't think that's what's going on. I think if you if you put a wild bird in a cage, it will it will thrash against the metal bars until it's dead. Does it want to die? Does it want to inflict pain on itself? No, it just doesn't know better. It it's it's placed in a situation where it will react instinctively and that reaction will lead to pain, suffering, and death. Um, and I think that's what's going on. I don't think God is cruel. Um, I think God doesn't know what he's doing, <laughs> what it is doing, uh, quite literally. And, and we are the spies. Uh, uh, we are the means by which it may eventually have an inkling about what it is doing to itself and maybe change its ways. Um, so I wouldn't. I don't think there is a problem of evil because the problem of evil presupposes a self-aware, uh, 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 deliberating mind governing existence. And I don't think that mind that is underlying existence and imminent in our existence, I don't think that mind is doing this in a deliberate way. It just doesn't know what it's doing. And ultimately, however, and I'll speak, I'll say this based on my own experiences. If you're not suffering, you're not asking the big questions and you're not really exercising your ability to self-reflect. In other words, if you don't suffer, you are not really playing your role in the bigger order of things, in the greater order of nature. Because imagine a person who never suffers. He or she will live a life of pleasure. <laughs> and you never ask the deeper questions, never have the anxiety, never have the suffering that will force you to stop and ask, hell, what is going on here? Why am I suffer suffering? Should I suffer? What does this mean? Where is this going? Know what I mean? Yeah. So instinctively, in a non-deliberate way, I think things are playing out in such a way that one, we suffer because God doesn't know better. And it so happens that it's very useful. It's very useful to suffer. Uh, all the books I wrote have been forged in the furnace of suffering. And when I'm not suffering, I'm not inspired. I'm building computers and playing games. <laughs> <laughs> and traveling with my girlfriend. <laughs> um, what I've thought about from time to time is it's an interesting thing about our lives is that we know that there's an end point, that we know that there's a death, that we know that at some point it's all over. I don't think other animals have that, I, you know, have that thought, you know, like back to your cats. I don't know if your cats ever think about, hey, at some point it's going to be all over and then what? And it's almost kind of in some way a cruel existence. That you know that, yeah. okay, I'm here, but then there's an end point and perhaps that's it. I mean, there is a possibility that we cease to exist and it's almost like we never existed ever and that's the end. Boom and poof and you're gone. Well, the, 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 the latter thing you said, uh, total oblivion of everything we are, mm. um, I think that's just a cultural artifact of the materialist narrative. Um, I don't think... Uh, there will ever be uh, an oblivion of your own raw subjectivity. Mm. It's the only carrier of reality you know. It's the only carrier of reality there is. I think most people are shocked by the thought that one day the lights will go out and 
my subjectivity will cease to exist. That shock is not a shock of fear. That shock is a cognitive dissonance. There is a part of you who knows very well uh, that that won't happen. So when there is another part of you who is convinced because of the cultural narrative that it will happen, you get it, you, you sort of get it, you, you tilt to use a arcade metaphor, you know, mm. the computer just resets and you go, like, well, what? <laughs> and trust that, trust that part of mind that's telling you it cannot happen. Yes, you're right. It cannot happen because your raw subjectivity is the carrier of reality. So where is it going to go? Where is it going to disappear into? It's what there is. It's where everything else unfolds, including your birth and your death. Um, now, the perspective that our personal identities will seize, that's different. Um, but look, it happens every morning when you wake up. You, you have an individual identity in your dream. You think you are the dream avatar. You think you are different from the rest of the dream. When you wake up, that, that dissociation ends, your dream avatar dies, and you realize that it was you all along doing the whole thing, the dream avatar and the rest of the dream, all the characters, the environment, everything. Do you mourn the death of your dream avatar every morning? You don't. Mm-hmm. You just go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's what's going on. Okay, let's, uh, let's brush my teeth, put on my clothes and go to work. Um, I think the worry about the end of the narrative of personal identity uh, only exists in this form in, 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 while we are in this state of consciousness mm. because we mistakenly identify ourselves with a temporary process as opposed to the thing that is manifesting that process, the thing within which the process unfolds. Because if you are the thing within which the process unfolds, you're still there when the process stops to unfold, right? Mm-hmm. Um but is it useful? I think it is useful because it, it helps us cut through the bullshit. Uh, it helps us focus on what really matters in life and, and, and not the adaptive goals of the first half of life, like you know, getting rich and marrying a model and mm-hmm. driving a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. And when you are 70-something, unless you're pretty, pretty psychologically sick, and there are many famous people <laughs> that suffer from that condition. So short of that, when you get to your 70s, you probably see through that bullshit you realize okay that's not really what matters here or at the the very latest in your deathbed then you realize oh shit i'm not bringing the ferrari with me Mm -hmm. i'm not bringing the model with me or the house or the million dollars in the bank yeah lights on now Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know so it's useful i think one of the common themes of people that come back from their near-death experience is that they experience an immeasurable amount of love wherever they go. Um, why do you think that they experience that? I don't really know because, you know, I'm, I'm not really a spiritual guy. I'm not enlightened. I don't have lots of direct experiences uh, or, or spontaneous experiences of universal love. Um, my view of reality is a non-dual one. I think love is as much a part of nature as its opposite is. And the opposite of love is fear. Um, and when these thing, things manifest on the screen of perception, in what we call matter, um, the dials show the following. Fear leads to separation. Love leads, leads to binding. That's, what, that's how it becomes represented on the screen of perception. The inner feeling of fear, the inner feeling of love. In one case, things grow apart. In the other case, things come together. So why do people feel love when they are dying? Well, because 
death is the end of the dissociation. And what is the end of the dissociation? It's the end of separation. It's the reintegration of your mind into the broader context wherein it has always existed, wherein it has always been rooted. So what would you experience then with this reassociation? Well, love, because that's the binding force in mind as opposed to fear. Hmm. All right. I heard you say that we cannot control our dreams, and I agree with you, but what do you think about when people experience lucid dreaming, when they realize... I, I would say we largely cannot control our dreams or we cannot control our ordinary dreams because if we could, we would never have a nightmare. Nobody chooses <laughs> to experience a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Now, I have had lucid dreams. I know they are for real. Um, but what struck me in many of those lucid dreams is that my control was limited even when I was completely lucid. lucid. So I could choose where to look, but I couldn't choose what was around me. Um, uh, there was a time in my life in my late 20s, I had a recurring dream of a dog pursuing me. And then there are all kinds of good Jungian interpretations for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but several times I became lucid during the dream. And I struggled with trying to wake up because I couldn't stop the dog. I was still running away from the dog. I knew I was dreaming, but I also knew that the dream bite hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh man, wake up, wake up. And I couldn't wake up. <laughs> So I couldn't even control my waking up from a lucid dream. I think we have surprisingly little control of our own minds, even in a waking state. Do you choose your next thought? You don't. Do you choose your feelings? You don't. Otherwise, you would never have regret. You would never have anxiety. You don't choose what you feel. It happens to you. Uh, um, you don't even choose what you imagine. Images come to you. And, and if you are schizophrenic, your whole reality is, is not chosen by you, although it's in your mind, in your mind alone. Um, it, it's a myth that we have control over mind. We have precious little, very precious little. Look, you, can, you have free will to choose your mortgage, mortgage package. Mm-hmm. You can choose across alternatives from three banks. But uh, you, you don't even choose who you marry, or uh, you, you may think you do, but the choice is really being made by feelings that uh, you're not even explicitly aware of. You don't choose your profession. You don't choose how you react in traffic. Uh, very little. We are, we are here for the ride. Uh, we are eyes of nature, but the body has its own life. Uh, the best we can do is look and pay attention. I think that's our role. I really like the how you said that, and maybe people should be, um, you know, a lot lighter on themselves because if we don't make all these choices, they maybe we all have a lot of guilt unnecessarily. Like, why did I think this thought? Why did I do this? You know, I mean, exactly. Except for the obvious things, like you know, really going out and intending to hurt somebody. Yeah, I think we we are justified to be a lot kinder to ourselves than we normally are. Um, a lot more forgiving to ourselves uh, than we normally are. And I think we should take ourselves a lot less seriously than we do. uh, Because although the subjectivity in you is the one carrier of all reality that exists, that subjectivity is not your personal self. It's not that narrative of identity you have. So that little avatar, that narrative we create, we take it way too seriously. Uh, Again, we are here to flow with the currents and pay attention to what happens, not to choose uh, what happens. 
Um, and if we can accept that, you know, in, in Greek philosophy, you would say if you surrender to your daimon, that bigger force of nature that acts through you, but which you don't identify yourself with, that doesn't have the interest of your illusory personal self in mind, but has the interest of nature in mind, if you surrender to that, then and only then you are free. Because then you have the freedom of the slave who recognizes who he or she really is and, and what he his or, or her role he really is in the dance of nature and stop expecting from ourselves the divine power of controlling life. We don't. We may think we do, and the ones that think they do are the ones that are least in control. All right, Dr. Kastrup, I am... Speaking of time and space, um, actually, let me ask you this before we run. Um, when people have near-death experiences, they often remark that there is no time. Their time ceases to exist. Can you comment on that? I am with uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant and uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, two of the greats of Western philosophy over 200 years ago. And also with modern neuroscience, which is beginning to arrive at the same conclusion, and modern physics, uh, which is beginning to arrive at the same conclusion. Um, space and time are not absolutes. They are not the scaffolding of the world out there. They are cognitive mechanisms. Um, they are things evolution has equipped us with to help us discern our experiences and make sense of the world. There is no space and time out there. It's a cognitive mode so to say, uh, which is unique to the configuration of consciousness we have. And we translate everything uh, out in the world into that internal cognitive scaffolding. In other words, we hang everything in the, onto the internal scaffolding of space-time so we can give everything its place and not become overwhelmed by the totality of what surrounds us. So it's a very useful evolutionary thing which also means that uh, if you are no longer alive, then in, in your con which means that the configuration of your consciousness has changed, then of course space and time are not going to be maintained because space and time are a creation or exist within this state of consciousness as constructed by evolution over, over, over the, the eons. Mm -hmm. So when you are not in this state anymore, of course, there will be no more space and time. And the dashboard is different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is no more little indicator of space here and time there. No, <laughs> the game is different. And we can't talk about that. People who experience that come back and say, well, I know they don't exist, space and time, for real out there. But they can't even begin to articulate what does exist because language has space and time built into it. And we think in spatial temporal terms couldn't have been any different. That's why space and time are important. They help us think. All right. If you don't mind, I want to take you quickly just into a little bit of some people would consider science fiction. So what is your opinion on beings living on other planets? otherwise known as extraterrestrials. Some people believe they're visiting here. It looks like there's more evidence showing up. Do you have any opinion on all that that you'd care I to think share? It's, I, th I see no in-principle reason to say that there cannot be life elsewhere in the universe. I think it's extraordinarily unlikely that there is intelligent life of our, of our level in many other places. Uh, um, I think it requires a fantastic combination of uh, synchronicities for something like us to emerge in nature, but I'm I'm open to the idea that there might be uh, other 
material, between quotes, uh, civilizations out there. Now, um, there are obviously weird things happening on this planet that are often associated with life from another planet, because these are things that you know, defy, defy physics and uh, seem to entail technology, but technology that we don't have, therefore it has to come from another planet. That I don't know. I am more with Jacques Vallée on this. I think Jacques Vallée has been the sharpest, most discerning UFO researcher to date. And he's more than a UFO researcher. He's a scientist and he's a philosopher as well. He has a theory of reality and, uh, based on cognitive associations, uh, which is an incredibly interesting theory. So I am with him that there is something profoundly unknown going on. I don't think there is any empirical doubt about that now. You know, over the past 10 years, I think it, it's recognized there is stuff going on out there that we know is going on and which defy physics and which seem to reflect a form of intelligence that also defies our logic. Our logic is human logic. There is nothing etched in stone that our logic is the logic of the universe. It's just mm -hmm. the way we think. But I suspect that these phenomena may be just things that happen on Earth, you know, in a different way, in a... In, you may want to think of it as a multi-dimensional hypothesis, but even that metaphor is a little bit tentative because it may not re really be time and space the way we think about it. Because time and space, again, is our own cognitive scaffolding. And we project it onto the world because evolution has favored it, it helps us survive. But this projection is just that. It's a projection. There may be things going on out there that do not comply to the regularities of space-time behavior that we have evolved uh, to project. Yeah. And these things may be very earthly things, but an aspect or a side of the earth that we don't even suspect uh, is going on. And I think that is the most interesting hypothesis, by the way. Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. It just makes me think about, I don't know if you saw recently where the Navy, the U.S. Navy released the thing that they were tracking on radar. And, yeah. But the fascinating thing is not only were they tracking it, at some point it started jamming the radar. So it was aware of it was being attracted and, you know, blocked it. We think we know everything there is to know about the natural dynamics unfolding on this planet. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a fantastic illusion. Um, we know what's going on on a very, very thin superficial layer of this planet. We, we have some models about what's going on deep within it, but very li little knowledge of that. Uh, even about the different forms of life and what's entailed in the physiology of different organisms, we are surprised every year. Um, has life ar arisen on Earth only once or multiple times? So many of the life that is surrounding us may actually have a different metabolic signature that may betray its separate origin from the life that eventually uh, has led to us. Um, not too long ago, lightning and fire provoked by lightning were great mysteries. Yeah. Not too long ago, the invention of radio waves and X-rays were mind-boggling. It's like, my God, there is this thing going through the air. Actually, it goes through vacuum as well. It's a thing that vibrates and goes through vacuum, but it's vacuum. What is there to vibrate? Mind-boggling stuff. But we now take it to be banal. 
And these things are great mysteries. Electromagnetic phenomena are still things we don't quite fully understand. We can model and predict its behavior. That doesn't mean that we really understand it. In the same way that a kid can play, a five-year-old kid can play a computer game and be world champion without really understanding what the game is, all the software and hardware involved uh, in that. So I think it's arrogant to presume that... uh, we know everything there is to know about what's going on on this planet in terms of intelligence that is operating here, in terms of the regularities of natural dynamics that are operating here. It's very arrogant to think we know it all. Uh, if you would, you, you would have told the scientists from the 17th century about the entire dynamics of the magnetosphere, he would say, this is, this is magic. <laughs> yeah. And yet it was happening here at all times, all the time. Muons are passing through your body multiple times since we've begun this conversation. And we can detect them today. But muons are magic. Nothing stops them. They pass through everything. And yet they can be characterized and measured. So, look, God knows what's going on here. (laughs) Know what I mean? The mystery may go a lot, a lot, a lot deeper then we dare imagine, even without needing to go to another planet. Mm-hmm. That's been a fascinating conversation, Dr. Kastrup. Let me switch gears here. Before we go, um, you've written nine books. I think you're working on another one. What is your most current book out? It's uh, Decoding uh, Jung's Metaphysics. So it's um, my attempt to make uh, the underlying metaphysical views of Swiss uh, psychiatrist uh, Carl Gustav Jung uh, uh, accessible. Uh, to people. And I claim in that book that Jung actually was a idealist. He also thought that all of reality played out in a form of mind, which he called the form of, uh, he called the psyche, which was his traditional term for that. Do you have a website or any other social media pages? Facebook? Yeah, all of it. But uh, you can find links to everything, books, free essays, academic papers, uh, 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 videos, podcasts. You can find the links to everything on my website, uh, bernardocastrop.com. One word. All right. Before we go, is there one last message of hope that you can share with us? Don't take yourself too seriously. Trust that uh, whichever way nature is unfolding through you, it's going somewhere meaningful. And just sit tight, watch And don't take yourself too seriously, but pay attention. (laughs) That's a great message. All right, Dr. Kastrup, thank you so much again for giving me your time. Um, I wish you the best and I wish you success in everything that you do. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Have a great evening. You too. Take care. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.